Welcome to the What's In My Head podcast. I'm your host, Julian, and thanks for checking out the audio format of our show. If you want to watch these episodes, check us out on YouTube. Just type in youtube.com slash what's in my head podcast. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as I bring you a piece of your childhood each and every week. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button here as well as on YouTube. Make sure to check us out on all social media platforms. That's where I'll ask you, the fans, to drop a question or two for our upcoming guests. You can find us on social media by searching at In My Head Pod. If you're digging the content, leave us a rating and review as that helps us and other fans of pop culture find us. Enjoy the show. All right, back at it again with part two with Fred Seibert. Fred, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you, Julian? Oh, fantastic, man. It feels like deja vu because I just asked you that question, but it always exactly. <laughs> like lead into it so people know it's like, did I miss part of this conversation or were they talking <laughs> before we didn't get to it? But nonetheless, man, when I had you on uh, last month, fascinating human being. You've done so much, uh, you know, throughout the years for fans like us, just from cartoons to shows to just different networks that you've worked on and worked with. And what I'd want to really talk about today is your, your time with Hanna-Barbera. And I asked you an over, an overcomplicated question to start off last time. I was like, what was it like? And you're like, let's break the thing up into smaller pieces so we can really hit the minute details in here. Right. And I went back and re-listened to that episode and I've got, you know, notes and notes and <laughs> that I really wish I would have asked you, but nonetheless, I've got to hear and I'm going to ask you today. Um, when you first took over for Hanna-Barbera, man, um, you, you said that you'd walked into the office and then you wouldn't sit at his desk for six months. Like you were just, it was big enough to fit the family of four is I think is what you said. And you were just, uh, just trying to soak it all in is what I took away from that. Um, when you, I was scared to death is what it really was. (laughs) When when you walked into that office, right. And what would a normal day-to-day look like for you when you first started just running Hanna-Barbera? Well, you know, when you're running a company that has two, 300 employees, uh, a 40 year history, like they had, and they had recently been taken over by Ted Turner most of my day was people coming in and asking me questions and expecting answers from me. So, you know, for instance, literally the first day, a gentleman walked in and said, we really have to have a conversation about the studio in Poland. And I'm like, what studio in Poland? He goes, well, we have, we own half of a animation studio in Poland. And today's the day we have to decide whether we buy the other half or we sell our half. And I'm like, uh, okay, sell. (laughs) And he goes, what do you mean? I haven't told you anything yet. And I I won't bore you with the long story, but my family is from Eastern Europe. So I have a little bit of history there. And I was able to say, they're probably not the studio for us, which they were not. And so we sold our half of it. But that's, you know, when you're running a large organization, most of the questions are answered in the individual units doing the things that they do. And by the time it comes up to you, it's because no one has solved the problem and they need you to break the tie. Yeah. So that was a lot of what my day to day was pretty much for the entire five years I was there. Now, when you would get this, because we talked a lot uh, about you giving the creators the control, you guys go and do this on your free time. And if it's something that, that, that we passed on, it, it, you could shop it to any network you wanted. Um, now, with you being under Hanna-Barbera and then under Ted Turner and Time Warner and all these other people, was Hanna-Barbera and Cartoon Network, obviously they're under the same umbrella, like I said, but were they separate entities when it came to animators and cartoons? Was it two separate um, uh, um, processes? It, it, it was separate, but remember, Cartoon Network actually started during the time that I was at Hanna-Barbera. And Ted's point of view was that every new show that Cartoon Network did had to come from Hanna-Barbera. And that was, at the time, controversial at the network side. They didn't want to be locked in to one supplier. Um, But it was the way that Ted wanted to run the company, and that was indeed the way that it ran. So um, pretty much, well, you know, to this day, most of the things that run on Cartoon Network come from what had originally been Hanna-Barbera, then morphed into Warner Brothers Studios when Ted sold the company to Time Warner, 
and then morphed backwards into Cartoon Network Studios, which is essentially Hanna-Barbera in a new location with new operators. Now, you, and you, you brought up earlier that you had a lot of the old guard, if you will, that were still there. And, and two people I really want to ask, and I'm never going to drop their names as far as first name basis because it's just they're legendary icons for me, but uh, Mr. Barbera and Mr. Hannum. Um, when, when you took over his office, were these guys coming in and, you know, giving you, I don't want to say take you under your wing or take, take you under their wing. Were they coming in and saying like, Hey man, maybe you should look at it this way, look at it this way. Or did they just completely go hands off and said, Fred, this is your ship now. Set a course. Got it. So, um, just to go backwards in history, remember, Cart um, Hanna-Barbera started in the mid fifties when Joe and Bill had worked at MGM and were fired along with everyone else in the cartoon business. And they started the company. Um, they did a little drop-in show at NBC, and then eventually they did Huckleberry Hound, uh, the Huckleberry Hound show. But by the mid-60s, they had sold the company to a company in Cincinnati called Taft Broadcasting. Yeah. Uh, Taft was a big television company, they wanted Hanna-Barbera in, and for the next 30 years, you know, more or less, 25 years, Hanna-Barbera was owned by Taft, and Joe and Bill were actually employees of the company that they had started. Yeah. But they ran the thing like they owned it, which was fantastic for the studio. That was during the time of their most productive hits, everything you know, from Scooby-Doo to Space Coast, you know, all of the, to the Smurfs. And then in the early 80s, Taft went through their problems and they sold the company uh, for pieces. They sold the TV station to some places, Hanna-Barbera to another place. And a new company out of Cincinnati called Great American Broadcasting was started by the guy who owned Chiquita Banana, believe it or not. <laughs> Um, he wanted his uh, son to go into show business, his son wanted to go into show business. So he started this company and Joe and Bill were no longer running Hanna-Barbera day to day under great American. Um, eventually a guy named David Kirshner came in and ran the company. And when Ted bought Hanna-Barbera from great American, David was still running the company, but David wanted to do feature films and, uh, the day-to-day Hanna-Barbera stuff was in limbo when they brought me in. So uh, Joe and Bill were still there as full-time consultants. They were in perpetuity consultants to the studio every year, and they were doing a variety of different things. Joe was running a show for Fox Kids called Tom and Jerry Kids, Fantastic. which would... Yeah, great. Well, you know, what was great about it is that Joe basically had invented Tom and Jerry, knew the gags inside out, and Tom and Jerry's kids was able to take advantage of not only Joe's knowledge and innate understanding of those characters, but he was able to bring in a whole new crew of young creative people to work on his creative team and really brought some energy to the show that eventually morphed into the Droopy show, also on Fox Kids, that he ran. Bill, on the other hand, you know, had always been, one, a fantastic director, one of the greatest timing directors in the history of cartoons. The gags in Tom and Jerry came because of Joe's ability to do comedy timing better than anybody in the business. But he also was the production expert who was the first guy in the industry to really figure out how to go to international studios to help do animation, which would keep the price at a place that American networks could afford it. So what had happened is that David Kirshner's first feature, mm -hmm. which was being animated at a studio that Hanna-Barbera partially owned in Taiwan called uh, Cuckoo's Nest, had run into some production problems and Bill had relocated to Taiwan to help through the production process of this feature. It was called uh, Once Upon a Forest. And while he was there, Bill took a physical tumble 
and broke his shoulder and ended up in a Taiwanese hospital and spent more time in Taiwan than he ever had in his life. And in fact, when I first got to the studio, Bill was still stuck in Taiwan. (laughs) So it was several months before I even got to meet Bill. So long story short, uh, I interacted with Joe and Bill as often as I could, but they were really busy on their own projects and were available to me for any knowledge or interest that I might have, but really stayed to their own projects pretty much. Now, there's two things that I really, really want to circle back on there. And then I'm only going to associate it with comic books because it's the only time I've ever heard about it. Um, so obviously, you know, I see Batman in the background there, um, Marvel, right? So Marvel had a specific way of doing comics. I mean, Stan Lee, and I think it was, uh, I was about to say Steve Buscemi, but, um, that's not right. I can't remember the artist that they, they teamed up with the book for, but it was the Marvel way to draw yep. right comics. Um, and you said that, that, that they were going over to Taiwan and, and then showing them animation. Was there a Hanna-Barbera, um, way, I guess, of doing of doing art or the animation or the cartoons? There had been, but as you can imagine, over a 40 year history, it had morphed incredibly. Mm -hmm. And what it had morphed to was a rather stiff and inflexible system that didn't allow um, most of the creative people in the process to really be able to um, affect the outcome. It was really controlled by a very small group of people. For instance, the classic Hanna-Barbera characters, if you look at the Flintstones and you look at the first couple years of production, Mm -hmm. the Flintstones actually look pretty radically different than they did toward the end of the run of the show. And that was because they brought in a much more inflexible production system they cutified all of the Hanna-Barbera characters, which had had a real, not only a graphic look to them during their original period of time, but they had been developed by people who had been in the feature business and had animated a particular way, which meant that models were always changing and like, you know, Fred's nose would be a different shape in this scene than in that scene, all that type of stuff. And while that was, had its own charms to it, it also meant for a much more inefficient production system, which an inefficiency in production means more expensive production. So they jammed it down to a fairly inflexible system. And frankly, it caused a lot of grumbling around the staff and had honestly probably affected the ability of the shows to really live and breathe. And probably also, um, it also probably contributed to the fact that between the early 1980s and the early 1990s, Hanna-Barbera had stopped becoming a creative force in the business by the time I walked in there. Now, you said, you, you had said that, uh, was it the over, it was rounding out, making everything look a little bit softer. And they did this with a couple different cartoons. Obviously you said Tom and Jerry kids. They had a pup named Scooby-Doo and they had the Flintstone kids. Um, was it them trying to, I don't want to say, it's going to sound like I'm, I'm shitting on them, but it, was it them trying to cash in on a, an entity or a franchise that was already there and just trying to make it more kid friendly? Or was it just something like, hey, let's just try something new and see if this sticks? Well, look, the the whole kids phenomenon, which I think had really been um, driven by Marvel Studios and I think it was like Sesame Street Kids or something. There was some show over there that had done really well. And, you know, the networks and particularly the Saturday morning section of the networks was were nothing other than following trends. Yeah. So once there was a trend, they came to Hanna-Barbera and said, look, you have famous characters. This whole kids phenomenon, you know, is really big. Why don't you do something with it? So they were, to some degree, they had to follow the marketplace and the marketplace was asking them for that. But the flip side of that is that as many original shows as Hanna-Barbera tried to get going during that period of time, 
I think they had basically run out of gas creatively and couldn't come up with new stuff that would really attract the marketplace. Now, was this, would this be input more from the studio saying, hey, we need to do this? Or was this something that Mr. Hannah and Mr. Barbera would have seen and said, hey, let's try this out? Or is, like I said, is this just a top-down directive saying, hey, let's see if this works as far as the trends were going? You know, as everything goes, it's a little of both. Mm-hmm. You know, like to some degree, you know, like I, I've personally been always bad at following trends and I'm a contrarian. So when the trend is moving one way, I try to move another way. But at the same time, you want to keep your three or 400 people employed. Yeah. You know, you owe them a living to some degree because they have put your, themselves in your hands and expect that you can solve problems for them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when the networks come a calling and they say, what do you have? And they reject all of your original stuff, but they accept the fact that you're doing Flintstones kids. You go, okay, I guess we have to do more of that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess if they're writing your checks. They're signing those checks. You're going to, I mean, I guess I got to do what you do. I'm holding up my side. You're holding up your side. Let's, you it's know. a little of both. It's yeah. a little of both. You know, I mean, the, the truth is, is that when you sort of, you know, keep knocking your head against the wall and you're not getting somewhere, you go, okay, is there another way through the door? And, you know, to some degree, you go with whatever will work in the marketplace. Now, when, when did you notice that, uh, like, was it more towards the end of your time as, because uh, you were the last president for Hanna-Barbera, correct? And then that was yeah. it. Uh, yeah. when, you were the, when you were on your way out, did they already tell you that Hanna-Barbera is no more? Or was the expectation of having somebody else come in and kind of take the torch after you pass it off? Got it. Well, long story short, Ted Turner had made a decision that Turner Broadcasting was too small a company to succeed Mm -hmm. as it was as a standalone company. And he decided that he needed to sell. And he had made a few decisions along the years that actually forced a sale to some degree. And he sold the company to Time Warner. Mm -hmm. Now, once you have sold your company, the purchasing company has the power. Yeah. And so Warner Brothers came in and said, well, we already have Warner Brothers animation. You know, now Hanna-Barbera is going to become part of Warner Brothers Hanna, you know, animation. And they're just going to be at most a label within there. And we're going to run everything. And that was very clear that that was going to happen. Yeah. And so I made a conscious decision to leave rather than be fired. Because probably when the merger went through, I would have been fired. Now, what does that feel like? Like me... Like I've told you before, I, I work in the restaurant industry. So with the exception of, you know, a Yelp review, and then you always get one or two of these crazy people that will just come up and talk to you at the pass. And for people that are listening, the pass is where we put all the dishes. You've got your chef or your GM there expoing or a food runner. So the pass is where all the food sits. Yep. So you'll have one or two crazy people that'll just come over there and he's like, you know what? My dinner sucked. And when you'd ask like, why did it suck? It's like everything was just horrible about it. Right. So when, when you would see this type of stuff and I'm not saying that the cartoons were sucking or, or, or that's what Time Warner was going on about when they bought out Ted Turner. Um, but would you start to hear rumblings on before you, you know, you walked away from Hanna-Barbera? before they said, before you could get fired. Um, what, did you hear rumblings or did you have any kind of inclination that you was like, I'm probably not going to be here or do you just want to get ahead of the curve? It was a little of both. You know, look, the woman who ran Warner Brothers Animation's name was Jean McCurdy. She had actually been employed by Hanna-Barbera for many years. And she admired what we had accomplished during the time that I was there. Um, she thought that Dexter's Laboratory was a fantastic show and We hadn't yet done the Powerpuff Girls, but it was coming and cow and chicken and all that type of stuff. But they were the vanquishing party. They were the party who bought the company and they go, well, now you're going to do it our way. Mm. And, you know, the truth is I was not an inexpensive part of the mix. Yeah. And one of the things that what happens when a company buys another company is they go, okay, where can we save money? well, we already have a president of Warner Brothers Animation. Do we really need a separate president of Hanna-Barbera? And, you know, so that was a sort of simple decision on their part. I could see that coming. And, um, 
working for Ted Turner was like a magical experience. This guy was a lunatic genius Mm -hmm. and a lunatic genius entrepreneur. And I loved working for him. I knew, you know, based on what I knew about the way that Warner Brothers ran their operation, not that it wasn't a fantastic operation. Remember at the time they had Animaniacs, they had Batman, the uh, animated series, the original series, They had a few other things. They were about to start the WB network. They were doing fantastic work, but they just didn't have room for a person like me who wanted to go my own way. They wanted to go their way. Made perfect sense in the end. Did I guess if I would have put like my heart and soul, like I've never ran a kitchen. I've always been, to use a basketball reference, I've always been somebody's Scottie Pippen to whoever Michael Jordan was in the restaurant. Sure. I'm perfectly fine, man. I, I am, especially now, right? So since we've talked last, um, and like I said, this uh, episode will go out right in about two to three weeks, this one's going to go out with the other one. So now I can probably finally say it. Uh, I've got another kid on the way. Um, hey, congratulations. Thank you. Fantastic. Um, and uh, when... I go out and do this stuff, right? So I picked this job that I'm doing now because I wanted to be somebody's guy. I didn't want to have to sit here and everything is on my back. Everything is on my shoulders. I have to do the decision-making. I have to come up with this. I have to talk to all these people. I just don't have the time, the patience, or the need to want to do this type of job. But with you, man, like I said, you were doing such creative stuff. Did you feel, I don't want to say slighted, but what did, what did it feel like to have to walk away from all of this stuff that you've accomplished, putting all of these pieces into, into motion that would create a juggernaut of a company and a juggernaut of an animation studio? What were you thinking or what were you feeling? Well, look, it's always mixed, right? The reality is, is that I've been working for about 50 years. Yeah. And 10 of those years, I was employed by other people. And once you're employed by other people, you are there at their pleasure. And one of the things I always know about employment is that one day it's like a video game. It's always game over. <laughs> you know, the, the, the good news is because for 40 of those years, I had worked for myself. I had a lot of confidence that I could figure something else out. And just like you're in the situation that you're in, At the time that Ted sold the company, I just had my first baby. He was a year old and I had a second on the way. Yeah. And so what was different is all of a sudden, aside from the creative uh, pleasure that I got from being able to bring the studio back, it hadn't had hits in 10 years. All of a sudden we were having hits and they were respected hits. I also had to make a living in a different way because I had people dependent on me, which had never really happened before. So I was a little concerned, but on a practical level, rather than on a creative level. One of the things that I knew is once you have accomplished something creatively, it can never be taken away from you. Mm -hmm. And that's why here we are. 30 years later, 25 years later, we're talking about the work that I was able to accomplish with the help of these great creative staff, you know, because that work will always survive and your role in it will always survive one way or the other. So in that part, I was sanguine that everything was going to be fine on that level, that the work would be remembered as something special. Then on a practical level is, okay, how am I going to pay the mortgage? How am I going to get ready to pay for college for these babies that are coming up? Now, you said when you inherited his office, his desk was in there, right? He left his desk probably because it was so damn heavy. They didn't want to move it, right? It probably. By the way, that's really true. Bill had moved to a little penthouse office. Um, It was the only office at the top of the building. And uh, he was happy to have a smaller domain. Yeah. it's always crazy because we, we've got the house now and we bought it 2011 and uh, we were so happy with it. And we're still happy with it because we're still fixing up. My wife has done a fantastic job. Every time I've deployed her and her family have come in and, and like they've redone the kitchen, they've relayed tile, they put granite. Fantastic. Here. They've just done a great job with it. Right. But as, as we've gotten in the house more and more, and it's a two story house, so we've noticed that like, God damn, we hate these stairs. Every time we change something upstairs, you got to take <laughs> stuff up and you got to take stuff back. So it's funny to see that 
that even him, he's like, man, I'm so much glad. I'm so glad that I don't have to carry this desk with me. I'm so glad that I can just sit in here. I'm feeling nice and tight in this little cocoon. It's great. That's exactly right. That's exactly how it worked. Now, what did you leave? Did Obviously, he left a desk, but did you leave anything? Did you leave your mark? Or did you leave a, a, a piece of furniture that you can remember or anything like that? You know, it, it actually didn't matter because what was clear is that Warner Brothers was going to sell the building and everything in it. Wow. Um, and I don't think they saved the desk. Um, they should have because it was a masterpiece. Um, in fact, I tried to figure out with someone else how to buy the building and turn it into something. But, you know, now it's a gym. That is, you know, literally. <laughs> that, is, that is the most disrespectful thing I have heard today. Well, you know, yes and no. You know, one of the things I will tell you that I have sort of come to the conclusion of is in a city where things don't change, mm -hmm. that city is dying. Yeah. And one of the things that's really true about Los Angeles is just like the television business and the movie business, things are always in flux, mm -hmm. right? You go there, like every time I turn around, what used to be there isn't there anymore. But the flip side is what used to be there has built into something brand new. Yeah. And a city that is constantly holding on to its past has a really tough time being something brand new. And uh, Los Angeles, for better and worse, is always a city that's reinventing itself. Well, it's just... When you think about it, you, I think about all of these places that I've seen or I've heard or I've watched on TV and one really comes to mind and it's in, it's right here in LA or right there in LA where you're at, um, the comedy store, right? You think mm -hmm. about the comedy store and, and you see pictures of all, like you walk down a hallway and all these pictures, you've got um, a, a Red Fox and you have Richard Pryor, you have Robin Williams, you have George Carlin, all of these pictures about where they've come from and where they're at now. So you get to walk this hallway and see the generation of comedy. And that's, I'm segueing into something you said earlier. So don't let me forget generational comedy, you, your parents and your kids all liking different things. But nonetheless, yep. you would think with something as monumental, something as American as Tom and Jerry, as Hanna-Barbera, when you see Hanna-Barbera, you know, hands down, you are going to get one of the best products when it comes to cartoons and like if it was me i don't know if it's just some sentimental sap or i just love this stuff so much that i would love to have seen a museum on i just got to imagine like i said the energy we talked about that last episode the energy that you would have walking into a room where all of these past just titans just these these amazing men and women that were from voice acting to cartooning to coloring to putting all of this stuff together to entertain fans like me and like you, because you were a huge Huckleberry Hound Show fan. That's really, you know, when we talked about that, you really hit on that one a couple times. Um, it's just to turn this damn thing into a crunch fitness or a 15 minute gym, or whatever the hell they're calling it now is, is ridiculous. Look, I, I, I am torn on that and I'm with you a hundred percent. And at the same time, it's what I said. I think that things have to like turn over. On the other hand, remember, fish stinks from the head. Yeah. You know, Walt Disney and Roy Disney, who started the Disney company, really thought about legacy mm -hmm. as entrepreneurs often do. Joe and Bill never thought about legacy, right? They were always in the moment, like, how are we going to survive and how are we going to stay alive? They had not been entrepreneurs. They were sort of forced into it when they were in their 40s because they had lost their jobs. Yeah. And just like everybody who ever had a job, they were the kinds of people who just like depended on making a living. And so the idea of preserving the history of doing it just wasn't in their mental state. And that's just sort of how the, you know, this studio proceeded over the years. It's been up to other people to save their history. And, you know, you got to live with what is. You now, know, so I would have liked it to be different, but so it, so be it. This is going to sound like a personal question. If you can't answer it, obviously you just can't. Um, when, when you said that they weren't looking down the road, right. They weren't, they were looking, they were it's feast or famine type of thing. I, yeah. I, I got to do stuff to survive now. You know, I, I got a baby on the way. I got a kid on the way. I've got a wife. Yep. I've got all this crazy shit going on. Um, were they financially okay back in the day? Yes. Or were, okay. So 
This was just well, the reason. I mean, to be honest with you, so when they sold the company in 1966 to Taft Broadcasting, mm-hmm. there was a little bit of tension between Joe and Bill because Joe didn't particularly want to sell, but Bill was really scared yeah. that it wasn't going to last. Mm-hmm. And they figured, okay, we can get a payday. So they sold the company for what then was a lot of money, you know, in the double g- digit millions. It didn't occur to them that if they had hung on, it could have been worth hundreds of millions. Yeah. Right. And that's just, you know, again, at every stage of your life, there's going to be a certain point where you grow out of your house and you go, you know, the market's big. We ought to sell now. Mm-hmm. You sell your house to buy another house. And then all of a sudden the market doesn't tank the way you thought. It just keeps going up yeah. and you go, boy, was I an idiot. But, you know, Coulda, shoulda, woulda. You just don't know. And when they sold the company, it seemed like a good bet. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, by the way, they stayed gainfully employed for a lot of money for the next 20, 30 years. Yeah. You know, so one way or the other that worked out for them. Yeah. I mean, like like I said, it's just, just, it always, I always like hearing how people think or why their, their motivating factors are the way they are. Obviously, we have a lot of similarities as people, you know, you want to be able to eat at the end of the day, you want to be able to sleep someplace comfortable. And when it's cold, you want to be warm. And when it's hot, you want to be cold. You know, so we all have the, these driving factors for each one, you know, depends on what you have as far as priorities go. So sure. just when I heard that, 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 that they were worried about this, that, and the other, I, I, I couldn't imagine, you know, them not having the financial stability because you hear about, the, the Superman guys, right, where they sold it. And then it wasn't up until shit within the last 20 years that their name started appearing on movies and comics. And all Look, the, the great news for Joe and Bill is, first of all, the studio was named after them. Mm-hmm. And so that legacy will continue forever and a day. You know, today you can see their stuff all over the place in, in the world. And the legacy of Joe and Bill, you know, hangs on very well. On the other hand, they were two completely different people. Um, When I met them, Bill was still living in the house that he had lived in when he was a contract director at MGM. Wow! It was the exact same house in the Valley, and he was very happy doing that. On the other hand, unbeknownst to many, Bill owned a lot of real estate in various places on the West Coast. He had a fantastic spread in Laguna Beach. And he had built a 150-acre ranch up at the northern California-Oregon border. Mm-hmm. And he lived the life that he wanted to live. Joe, on the other hand, liked having sports cars. He liked having a big place to entertain, you know, in the valley, um, in the San Fernando Valley. And, you know, everybody lives the life that they need to live, and they do it the way they did. As it turned out for them, they sold the company made a bunch of money then, but then they stayed employed literally until the day they died. They stayed as well-paid consultants. The last year that I was running the studio, I think they made about a million dollars each just signing commemorative cells (laughs) that we sold a lot of place because we paid them like 25 bucks a signature, Mm -hmm. each of them to put onto a cell. And by the way, a year later, that business crashed entirely, and you can probably buy those cells for $25 with both of their signatures on them today. I'm going to write that down right now on my little notepad to go get some Hanna-Barbera material. For my yeah, own. just take a look on eBay. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. So I'm going to segue a little bit back because I think we've we've given these guys enough credit. I mean, obviously, you can never give these guys enough credit, but... Yeah, they were they were, they were magical, and by the way... It was one of the great experiences of my life that I not only could work in a company that had their name on the door, but that they were in the building and that I could spend time with them any moment that I wanted to. That, that was like a really amazing part of my life. To be a fly on the wall for one or two of those conversations. I mean, you hear all the time about what people do or what they would have done, what they could have done or what they should have done. Um, yep. You really got to live the life, man. It's essentially what I'm getting at. I'm very envious. I completely did. I was a lucky guy. 
Yeah, I mean, if anybody was, like I said, I tell you all the time, and if anybody's as lucky as you, man, it's, it's us as fans. But segue back <laughs> to you, because you said something that I didn't get until I listened to it this morning, and I really started thinking, I was stuck on this point. And you said comedy was generational, right? So when you started watching it, your parents didn't think SNL was as funny as you. And then I can't remember what show, you might have not said it, but whatever your, your son was into, you just didn't get it. And that kind of segued into us talking about Adventure Time, how you almost passed completely, like you didn't have anything to do with this. Um, when you think about comedy and generational and being, you know, both funny for old or not old people that's wrong but a past generation or a new generation when when, when i heard that man i needed to ask like what you really if you could go more into detail about comedy being generous because i like older stuff but i like funnier stuff and then there's just stuff that's not for me yep but that's exactly what it is is that um all kinds of art mm-hmm. whether it be highfalutin art that you know shows up in museums and galleries or commercial art that shows up on comic books or television or wherever it is. Art is for audiences and not all art is for all audiences. Yeah. I don't know about you, but when I go to a museum and I see all of that classical art, I can appreciate it, but I don't necessarily like a lot of it. Yeah. You know, whereas um, there's a museum down the block from where I am in Massachusetts that is uh, dedicated to the work of illustrator Norman Rockwell, who was one of the most famous illustrators in the mid-century in the United States. And I look at that stuff and I just think it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. But it was in my generation. It spoke to me. And he was speaking to maybe my parents, but I was sort of caught in the backwash and I got to see that stuff and it, it was meaningful to me. I think it's the same thing with comedy in particular. Uh, Unlike drama, comedy is really made for the moment by people who are of the moment. Mm -hmm. You know, so when somebody looks at at SNL today, you know, almost 50 years later, the audience is pretty much around the same age as the people who are writing the comedy and performing the comedy. And they are talking to things that make sense to them you know in my day snl would refer to people like james brown and ray charles and joe cocker those were the people that were the musical uh, forces of the day now they're talking about beyonce and um uh megan the stallion and cardi b and those people mean nothing to me but they mean something to my kids. Even if my kids don't like those people, they mean something to them generationally. And comedy always refers to its moment. Yeah. Right. It is not, there aren't, I mean, timing in comedy always is real. If you time your joke properly, someone can laugh and not understand the joke. Mm-hmm. Right. But generally you got to understand the joke. And the jokes aren't for me. I think the show that I might have referenced at the time was Parks and Rec. And I I look at that show and I go, okay, I appreciate the fact that Amy Poehler is really funny. Yeah. I just don't care. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I I don't care that she's funny because she's not being funny about things that mean something to me. Yeah. Yeah. I I connected over Ron. Like we started watching that show uh, like last year, year before last. Um, Cause my wife and I will try to, we'll try to find something that we can both like. Cause me, I like watching cooking shows. I like watching cartoons. Uh, it's in sport, yep. pretty much it. And by sports, I mean, basketball. I don't really like or get into anything else. Cause I just, there's not very much. But, but, that's a, but isn't that a great example? I grew up with the most meaningful sport being baseball, mm-hmm. right? Now baseball is a much less meaningful sport and basketball is meaningful to you and to a bunch of people like you, but football is appreciated by a much larger group in the United States than any other sport. That's just how things are. And so while I can occasionally be upset that Beyonce doesn't sing songs the way that I like songs, Mm -hmm. right? I can appreciate the fact that for people of a certain age, Beyonce speaks to them. Or, you know, I recently just saw the performance documentary 
of Taylor Swift's later latest album. Yeah. I appreciate the fact that Taylor Swift speaks to a lot of people. She just doesn't speak to a 69-year-old man. I don't expect her to. I I hope because because being a guy, and I'm gonna put myself out there. Um, one of my favorite because I'm I'm not huge into to music, right? I, I like certain types of music or certain eras of music or certain genres of music. But as a collective, I listen to more podcasts than anything because I like learning shit. Like you can learn something in a song, but you know, to an extent, you're getting old, man. (laughs) You're getting old. You want to learn stuff. There's just so much stuff out there. And like I said, I like listening to the same stuff, but there is one, I guess, newer artist. So this puts me in good with like the younger crowd, I guess when I sit there and talk or when my kids got friends over, he's hanging out and they bring up somebody. Um, it, I don't know if you've ever listened to her, but Miley Cyrus, my sure. God, her voice, it's something about voices and it's something uh, uh, about a presence or, or, you know, you're putting a bravado or whatever that is. She's just exuding all of this stuff. And she's probably as far as like the last 10 to 15 years, probably the only new artist that I can really get behind and really get into because it feels like she's singing to an older generation, right? I don't know if that there makes you sense by it. You know, well, you know, she, but you know, she comes out of a family that spoke to an older generation. Her father, Billy Ray, you know, was really big in his day. And, you know, that kind of influence really affects you and the kind of art that you make. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, like my, the only new artist that has spoken to me on any level is Megan the Stallion, who I happen to catch uh, you know, a clip after she was on SNL uh, a few weeks ago. All of my friends think I'm crazy, you know, but I look at her and she is an artist that is unbelievably vital and unbelievably special. It's not my music. Yeah. I'm not going to put that on for enjoyment, but when her music comes on, I'm going to pay attention to it yeah. because I know that she's an artist worth paying attention to. Yeah. When, when somebody... I, but I think that that is true across all art forms, including the one that I'm involved in. There's a reason that on my team, I have younger folks mm-hmm. that are involved on the, on the stuff that we do because I'm not making cartoons for 69 year olds. Yeah. You know, I'm making cartoons for specific audiences and, you know, I'm really far away from an 11 year old. I'm really far away from a 25 year old. I have to have people who can translate for me into those languages. Now, was that a perspective that you've always had? Because when you said that last time, you, you like to have young people out there because they're connected in different ways than you can be connected because you've got, you're already set in your ways. You know what you like, what you like works for you, you know, and obviously not everything that you like, everybody else is going to like. Is that something that you've tapped into because when you were talking about cartoons, you said, do what you want to do, find your voice. And then if we like it, we'll put everything behind you. We'll put the rocket boosters on you and we'll see how far you can get, how close you can get to the moon. Was that something that you've always had or was that something you've learned throughout the years? Just like, let me get the people that know the most around me and inform me. Well, I'll tell you when I first started thinking about it. Um, as I've said, I'm kind of a music guy. I come out of the music thing and I paid a lot of attention to what was popular even if I didn't like it, I paid attention to it to figure out why is that popular and why don't I like it? You know, that type of thing. So I'm in my thirties, I suppose, maybe even my twenties when uh, one of the famous record moguls, David Geffen started a new company called Geffen records in the early eighties. And it was right at our MTV age. So I was really, you know, involved and I'm reading an interview one day uh, as he had started the company and he, they said, what kind of music are you looking for? He goes, I'm not looking for any music. I'm 43 years old. <laughs> like, I can't figure out what it is. I have three folks who work for me, and they find the music. I believe in them, and therefore, I'm going to believe in the music that they believe in. And that was the beginning of my understanding that just because you're good and talented at what you do, it isn't permanent that you understand how to... Um, how to look at what is going on in the culture Mm -hmm. and being attached to it. And so you need these translators. So when I started in the cartoon business, one, I was 40 years old and two, I had never worked in that business. I had no idea what I was doing. I knew what it was that I liked. I knew what it was that spoke to me, 
but I didn't have an idea of how the process worked. So when we were first doing our first shorts for What a Cartoon, I brought 20 other people in the room for me with me. And I looked at those 20 people and I looked at what they thought. I put it against what I thought. And somehow or other, we came to a common set of thoughts. When I started Frederator and I did Oh Yeah Cartoons, it was me and one other guy in the room. Yeah. And at that point, I had worked in the business enough that I thought I understood what I needed to understand. Mm -hmm. And from 1998, when I started the company, to 2005, when Penn Ward pitched Adventure Time, I went on my instincts as to what was going on. And then Adventure Time came along and I turned it down. And luckily, there were two people in my office that said, are you crazy? Mm -hmm. And I said, sure, let's, you know, let's give it a whirl. And within minutes of us really starting the project, I realized how brilliant Penn Ward was. And again, back to what I have learned about what I do is it's about is the right person in the room. Yeah. And it's not about me. It's not about my staff. It's about that person and their vision and their ability to execute that vision. So what it did is it refocused me on, okay, what do I do well? I recognize talent. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily recognize what that talent does. I recognize them and I work on their instincts as to what goes on. Well, that's a fantastic way to look at it. And we're starting to, I think we've already hit our 45 minute time. So I'll uh, wrap it up with just a couple more questions and quick and easy ones. Sure. Um, but one thing I really wanted to hit on that you just said, uh, when you would have all of these people in, because you said you had like 20 people at one time, and with Frederator, there was one or two people. Um, what was the process for weeding out yes men and women? Like you wanted people to say, obviously, like me, I'm, I'm a, <laughs> I don't want to say I'm a contrarian. I just, I'm, no, 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 very, just... I'm very blunt yeah. when it comes to things. I just tell people my, my opinions, whether they like it or they don't. I try to be as nice as possible, but my face says pretty much everything that I'm either thinking or saying. And it's very hard to sit here and throw mixed messages is essentially what I'm getting at. But did, would you have a process where like, oh, this guy just keeps saying yes. And I, I want somebody to, to elevate me. I want somebody to evolve with me. Look, there was a guy who uh, worked for me at Hanna-Barbera when I got there in the development group. And he was a very friendly guy, a very nice guy. He was a very talented guy. But every time I said anything, he said yes. And after a couple dozen yeses, I finally looked at him and I said, look, you have two choices here. You can tell me what I want to hear. And if I continue to understand that that's what you're telling me, I'm going to fire you because I already know what I think. Yeah. I don't need you to agree with what I think. I need you to tell me what you think. Now, if you tell me what you honestly think, it's 50-50 as to whether I'm going to fire you. <laughs> you know, but the question becomes, do you want 100% I'm going to fire you or you want a 50-50? I take a 50-50. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. He never really quite figured that out. And so we didn't last all that long together. Mm -hmm. you know? And it is, look, it's always a balance. You know, because you're married, the ones you bring somebody else in the room, like there's going to be, like, you're not going to agree on everything. There's going to be tension. And the question is, is can you come to a point of view that you can both live with? Yeah. And that's the same thing with creative work. The issue isn't that I'm going to agree with the people who are in the room or that they're going to, that I'm going to agree with them or they're going to agree with me all the time. The question is, is can we find a common language that we speak so that when we come to conclusions, that we can come to conclusions that we can both feel proud of, whether it works or not that you are proud of the decisions you made and that you took your best shot. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a fantastic way to look at it. When you really look at it, like I said, you don't want somebody to just tell you, your shit don't stink. You don't want somebody to tell you, oh, everything is rainbows and unicorns and all this other crazy shit. You really want an honest answer because that's how you grow. That's how you get better. And that's, that's, that's how look, you know, you know, in your business that, you know, there's only so many ways you can do chicken. Yeah. Right. But, depending on how you do that chicken and what you surround it with. Do you surround it with rice or farro? Do you sur surround it with apples or tomatoes? Like depending on how you put it together is how it works. Now, 
you know what you think is the right way to present chicken. Mm-hmm. There's now going to be a new guy that comes in and thinks about it completely differently. You're either going to like think differently along with him, or you're going to go, that's too different. Get out of my way. Yeah. That's just how it is. As soon as there's a second person in the room, you got to figure out how you come to common conclusions. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it really is. I mean, learning if everybody was married right off the bat and they actually had to give it an honest try, you would realize that it doesn't matter how loud your voice is, how deep your voice is, how high your voice is, or how hard you can scream. At the end of the day, you know, you, it's really, it is a marriage and everything you do when it comes to work and everything like that. It's 50-50. It's give and take. It's you give a little, I give a little, and when we come up, it's a lot, right? So, you know, I, I really like what you're saying is essentially what I'm getting at. The last question I wanted to ask you, and then I'll let you go. Um, if you sat here and thought about it, say hypothetically, and I don't know if you're a big hypothetical fan, but I like, I like these type of questions. Hypothetically, if you would have passed on Adventure Time completely, where do you think you'd be at both mentally and physically right now? Do you think it'd be like, ah, oh, shit, it'd just be something that wish would have happened and maybe next time I'll get them? Or would this have been something you would have dwelled on a little bit? I think the question becomes, did I pass on Adventure Time for good reasons or for bad reasons. <laughs> and if I pass on adventure time because it wasn't what I wanted, mm-hmm. I would be out of business. Yeah. If I passed on adventure time, because honestly, I just couldn't get there. That's fine. Because then the next adventure time that would come along, maybe I would recognize that. Yeah. So, you know, it really depends on what your attitude is. My attitude is it's not for me. I don't know everything. In fact, I think I might have mentioned it in the last time, but if I didn't, um, I'll repeat myself. There was a book written by a famous screenwriter called William Goldman, and there was a famous chapter heading in it, which is, in Hollywood, nobody knows anything. Mm-hmm. I consider myself at the front of the line of not knowing anything. My, my job is to do my best to recognize talented people and see if I can help them accomplish their hopes and dreams. And if I've done my job well, and I really do recognize a talented person, and I can be helpful to that person, everybody benefits. The creative person benefits, I benefits, I benefit, (laughs) and the audience benefits, most importantly. And in the final analysis, it's like, if everybody can get a piece of the action, we're all better off. Yeah. Like I said, man, you've been a class act. I really enjoy talking to you. And next year, 2021, I'd love to have you come back on down the road when you've got some some stuff to really start promoting, because I'm really excited to see what Fred is going to do next. Uh, that's really sweet of you, Julian. I feel the same way. Your uh, enthusiasm and your fandom leads to an interview that is different than most interviews that I get. And I, I really appreciate what you've done here and what you're doing. Um, let's keep talking as often as we can. I'd be really thrilled to be a guest again. That's fantastic, man. I love hearing it, man. If this podcast has said anything, it's always meet your heroes because your heroes always live up to the expectations you have. Thank you, man. Thanks so much. I've been Julian. This has been what's in my head podcast. And thank you for listening. Thanks again for checking out the what's in my head podcast. If you're digging what you're hearing, leave us a five-star rating that will help other fans of animation and pop culture find the show. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button, tell a friend, and I'll see you guys and gals next week. Good night.